Some friends of mine in another state uh, were in a conflict a little while ago. And three of them met together to try to work out the, the issues, talk through it. It was theological in nature. And, and how, do we, how do we live the theology as part of the church? Unfortunately, they were leaders of the church. Uh, and I heard from each of them about the conversation that they were, they were trying to work through. And it was amazing. Same conversation, but each one gave a remarkably different account. Uh, not just of the things that were said, but the ways that they were said. Uh, it was as if they were talking about three different conversations. These are all honest people. They're all faithful. They are all pastors of the church. But they didn't even correctly remember the different positions that the other guys were taking. Everything was distorted. So strange. A lot of what we feel, a lot of how we process things, a lot of how we receive information and put it together, depends on the mentality that we bring to the conversation. Doesn't it? If we come expecting a fight, we will be ready for a fight. We'll posture ourselves for a fight. We'll hear things as attacks. If we come looking for peace, we usually find it. At least in ourselves. Perspective is very often determined by the quantity and the quality of the information that we have. The perspective we take. Uh, have you noticed? Have you noticed how quickly and inadequately you weigh the words of other people? So as words come in, or how quickly you form a judgment uh, of, of fault when two of your friends are in conflict, so quickly you'll, you'll take a side. You do that, right? We all do that. I know this is true. In an instant, we'll read into looks, we read into words, we make associations, many of them false, based on very little information, much of it slanted and faulty, we'll move someone from the category of friend in our lives to enemy. Someone who could have been poured into us, who could have invested in us for years and years, will quickly become an enemy. This is very much human nature. It's related to the, the self-protective impulse that we have as fallen beings. So it's our inheritance of fallenness. We fear losing our place. We fear the opinions of others. We fear being shamed. We fear, we fear. We're driven from fear to fear. And so we protect. Paul knew this about people. Of course. The apostle knew this about people. He knew the Corinthians were being driven by fear in their conflicts with each other, by, in their conflict with Paul. What Paul wanted for this Corinthian church was to get back on redeemed ground. Get back on ground where they were, they were thinking as redeemed people, relating to each other as redeemed people. So he wants to get them thinking and relating according to their identity in Christ Jesus. According to 
being part of Christ's family together. They needed a perspective shift. Just as we often need a perspective shift. Ultimately, for Paul, the apostle, the founder of this church, it was more important that they remember that they're the family of Jesus. That this church that he's far away from, it's more important that they live according to their identity as Jesus than that they have a good opinion of Paul. But he does know that, he knows, if they do recover the mind of Christ, they will find restored relationship. They'll find restored relationship together. They'll find restored relationship with him. And so he wants to give them that mind of Christ. We're in chapter 2. We're working through 2 Corinthians. Here we are, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 and following. To help them recover the mind of Christ, he relates his own experience and he shares his own perspective. Because he knows, he knows he is seeing and he is acting with a heart of grace. He knows he stands in grace. And so he shares his experience so that it, they also might share in that. They also might hear, what is it like to have an attitude of grace? What is it like to speak from grace? He speaks that way. He shares it so that they might share in it. They might be recipients of it. Just like comfort works, you remember in chapter 1, the way that comfort, when we share our experience of being comforted, others get comforted as well. It has the, a multiplying effect. Speaking from grace has that same multiplying effect. So, he starts out and he shares a bit of what he was doing while the Corinthians were fighting amongst themselves. He'd gone to Troas and he was waiting for his messenger Titus. Titus who he'd sent to Corinth to come back and report how things were going. Uh, how did they receive his letter? And uh, Troas is a port city uh, on the coast of Asia Minor. And he found he was very busy there. There was an opportunity to preach. When Paul gets an opportunity to preach, he takes it. There was good ministry. He says there was a door opened for him in the Lord. That wasn't always the case. An opportunity. There were people willing and wanting to receive the gospel. It's not always the case. Good ministry. But look at this. It, it's a stunning marker of his love for the Corinthians, his love for this church, his genuine care for them, that he couldn't peacefully stay there and do this great work. He couldn't, his, his heart was not at rest to proclaim the gospel. Because he knew that they were not secure. His brothers and sisters in Corinth were not walking together. And so he says, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find Titus there. I didn't know how you were getting on. He so loves them that he couldn't just get on with this good ministry. He had to keep moving. And so he moved on. He went, got on a ship, went across to Macedonia. And he, that's moving in their direction. And then his heart is suddenly lifted when Titus comes to meet him. And he comes with this good news that the Corinthians had repented. They had a change of mind. He was comforted. He was encouraged. 
And he wants them to be comforted and, and encouraged as well. So that's why he writes this letter. It's what this letter comes from. He receives this good news. He wants to encourage them. Now, it's at this point in the writing that he begins to help them adopt his eternal perspective. If they are going to be reconciled with each other, they're going to have to have the perspective of Christ, the eternal kingdom. He wants to give them the gift of thinking and reasoning and acting according to who they are in Christ, which is how he lived. So he's going to give them a part of his perspective. Verse 14. I hope you're looking, following along. He says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Here's the image. He's conveying an image. When a Roman general won a major victory or had been successful on a campaign, uh, the general came back to Rome. The Senate and then later the emperor would give them a big parade that they called a triumph, a triumphal parade. The victorious general would be seated in a chariot Guilt, uh, led by white horses. The family of the general would be in the chariot with this general. Particularly adopted children. Symbols of honor would be showered. Uh, initially it was a laurel wreath, then it became a golden band. They would be given uh, all, all these emblems of honor. Purple robes, heralds, walking ahead, proclaiming their virtues, saying how great they were. All the good things that they had done. Trumpets blaring, prizes of war being led in parade behind. I don't know if you've ever seen a big military parade. Uh, we still do this. Signs of honor. Then the Senate would follow behind them. And other leaders following behind. Lastly, prizes of war, human prizes of war would be led. And so as they walked... And when they arrived, they would be going to a designated temple where a, a white ox would be sacrificed. The ox would have the horns dipped in gold. All along the way, incense and perfumes would be wafting. Incense carried by the procession. This was a feast of sight, sound, smell. That's the image that Paul's conveying here. And he says, he tells the Christians, that as we are in Christ, God the true emperor showers us with honor and glory. Christ is the victorious general. We are in him. So as we are in him, Christ the conquering king is receiving all honor, glory, dominion, power, proclamations of his greatness. And as his adopted ones, we ride along in the chariot. Hearing this proclaim, his goodness, our family being celebrated. And he says this is an always reality. He says, 
Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us. It's a continuous present. This is always happening. Ongoing. We are being displayed for the glory of Christ. It's a shocking thing to say. If you just look around. I mean, look, really look. (laughs) This is for the glory of Christ. This brings Him honor. We are being displayed for the glory of Christ. We're showing that we have God's favor and we have His friendship. The Father pouring honor on His Son in us. And He combines then the, the sensory experience of the parade. The smell. He talks, begins to talk about the aroma, the fragrance that's wafting. The fragrance of Christ to God. How delighted the Father is in Christ. That there, there is a, a fragrance, an aroma that pleases Him, delights Him. The delight that Christ is to the Father. Christians are to be for each other. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. We are this to each other. Here the matter of perspective comes in. Comes in painfully. Also, those who are set against Christ and set against His rule will find the same thing, the sight, the sound, the smell of Christ, the smell of Him in Christians to be unpleasant. The things of worship will be unpleasant. A fragrance, he says, from death to death. What does he mean? Those who don't accept the risen Christ, who don't accept his, the, the fact of his resurrection, and the reality of his rule, who re- regard him as dead, or simply live as if he were dead, they experience the message of Jesus and the people of God as lifeless, meaningless, senseless, dead. From a perspective of death can only come the reception of death. So the rejection of God further confirms them towards death and away of death, from death to death. So... He says, we are an ongoing parade of glory to God. We are always demonstrating the victory of Christ over sin and death. As we live in Christ, we are a fragrance of life. We're a fragrance of delight to God and to all those who long for the glorious appearing of Jesus. We are that. Those who want the joy of God will find it with His people. It's where we'll find it. Now that thought, Paul's consideration of this strange reality prompts the piercing question that we are proclaiming the glory of Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? That's a, that's a right question, isn't it? Who is sufficient? 
Because you might think that he would launch into how, as an apostle, who's unlike those false teachers. He's a legitimate apostle. That he's especially good and glorious. He might talk about his own virtues. Unlike those false teachers, you might think he'd remind them of the miracles done through him. But no, because he's bringing them to the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is humility and dependence on the Father. And so he asks, who is sufficient for these things? Not us. Not us. He says we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word. We're not salesmen. We're not fast talkers. We are also not impressive. In fact, we are very unimpressive. We are not sufficient to adequately show who Christ is. We are not sufficient to convey His Word as would be truly worthy of Him. No, he says in verse 17, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's all we've got. All we've got is the truth. All we've got is what God has shown to us. Whatever He's shown of who He is, what He's done, that's what they speak with complete sincerity, with simplicity, no embellishments. They're not rhetorically polished. We just say what we know to be true. But what they have that the peddlers of this other word don't have is an actual commission from God. They've been sent. Sent by God. And so they can speak. That's why they can speak with that confidence and ease. All we have is the truth. Now here is where sufficiency. This is where the sufficiency comes from. To be Christ's parade of triumph. Verses 4 to 6. He says, and this is in chapter 3. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves. We are not to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. You hear? There's the repetition of this, the concept of sufficiency. Where does it come from? Not from here. Not from our minds. But we have confidence in the Spirit of God and in the commission He's given us. We get to look forward to that outside next week. So where does sufficiency and confidence come from? It's not from the knowledge or the ability of the messenger. And Paul, Paul wants to be clear about this. Remember who this is. This is the rabbi Paul brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Based on his training, he would have known the Torah by heart. He knows God's Word. His letters, the epistles we have, show familiarity with all the Greek forms of rhetoric. He knows the Hebrew way of thinking. He knows the Greek way of thinking. He knows the languages to convey them. He was a scribe and a Pharisee. 
He was every bit as self-disciplined as the best Stoic philosopher. But he rejects any notion of self-sufficiency. He does not have it in himself to bring life to other people. Anything that comes to him, anything that comes through him of God's everlasting word comes from the sufficiency of God. So all Paul could offer is the letter. That is knowledge and discipline. That's all that is in him to offer. A a pastor, a preacher. All that we have in ourselves is whatever training that we have. The best that I could do for you acting in my own abilities and own strength and knowledge, is to bring you up to the level of my education. What would that do for you in eternal life? Nothing. All Paul could give them in his own strength and by his own knowledge is to bring them up to be a Pharisee. Good behavior. Willpower. Through the written code. This is the letter. Willpower to follow a written code or form of philosophy. And you might be impressive to other people. But according to the Apostle Paul, trying to be sufficient will kill you. The letter kills. How important is this? This is hugely important. As soon as we hear, this is what we're like, as soon as we hear that we're the aroma of Christ, we change it from being a declaration of fact, which Paul makes it, to being something we have to achieve. I'm the aroma of Christ. Uh Uh-oh. I got to show forth the glory of Christ to the world. I've got to be on my best behavior all the time. I can't show what I'm really like. I can't show the nasty thoughts that I have all the time. I better be good at being the aroma of Christ. I better be nice. I better be the nicest person that I know. I better have good hygiene. Don't want to bring contempt on Christ. I better have good grammar. I better not make anyone uncomfortable. I better not say anything that would trouble anyone. I got to be winsome all the time. So that means I've got to evaluate with every single person what's going to be winsome to them and what's not going to offend them. The letter kills. This kills. Who can do this? Who is sufficient for that? No one. You are not sufficient for that. And it is against the work of Christ. It is against the gospel of Jesus to do that. To claim personal sufficiency to please God or win others. That is a false gospel. Don't do it. If we could just be good enough, and if the glory of God could come from us, Through our own power and goodness, who needs Christ? It's us. This is not only untrue, it is a burden no one is meant to carry. The most miserable Christians 
are those that try this. And I dare say, every one of us tries this. And we are most miserable when we're doing it. Trying to be good enough to get God's favor. Trying to be good enough to look good to others so that they'll like Jesus. We are just not that attractive. You are not that attractive. We don't have life because of what we've done. And we can't give life to others by what we do. There is no ambiguity about this. The Spirit gives life. Verse 6. The glory of God, the goodness of God, the light of God, the life of God, the knowledge of God, all that is of God, comes from God. He gives to us, and He works in us and through us. So let that relieve you of burden. Please. Don't have life because of what we've done. It is ours to seek Him. It's ours to obey Him. It's ours to receive open-handedly the gifts that He pours on us. Joyfully receiving what He offers. That's ours. Paul found that God had awakened the Corinthians to life through His preaching. And he points to the fact of the, of the Corinthian church's existence as evidence not of his skill, but as evidence of what he's talking about. In the uh, first three verses of chapter 3, a living God uses weak people. He says, you are a letter from Christ through us. The true gospel is not one of performance, but of receiving grace and receiving the sufficiency of God. So the fact of the Corinthian church is evidence for the legitimacy of this gospel. They are changed people because that's, how, that's the gospel that was brought. So Paul can claim, you're a letter from Christ simply delivered by us. Not written by us. Delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. We did not write this letter. Christ wrote it. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts which we cannot touch. We cannot, you cannot touch another person's heart. You cannot spiritually work in someone. You cannot do it. Only the Spirit of God can work in the spirit of another person. So don't try. So why is it so hard to remain in this simple gospel? Or in the simplicity of the gospel? Why is it so hard? Why is it that even though we received salvation by God's gift, we know it was gift, we still strive to make God like us and to get others to see we're worth something? Why? Could it be pride dies hard? Could it be that there's, there's a part of us? The part of us that belongs to the perishing realm. That insists the ways of the world are better. That insists the ways of the world are in fact more rewarding. 
certain more immediate. The, the Corinthians here. The Corinthians, they came from mostly pagan backgrounds. This church he's writing to. They looked to Aphrodite. They looked to Zeus. They looked to Poseidon to make them happy, to deliver for them. We want the same kind of worldly comforts that those Corinthians wanted. We want the same kind of stuff that the Corinthians were after by appealing to their gods. We appeal to our own efforts because we're Americans. We look to our efforts and we get very upset when others get in the way of what we want. Our same pagan desires for leisure, for sex, for power, for money, for celebration, for security. All, those are all those are pagan desires we get by our own efforts. The gospel offers a better perspective. The gospel offers a better way of looking at life that frees you from trying to control your world, that frees you from trying to control other people around you to get what it is that you want. Living according to the work of Christ will free you to enjoy the parade of God's triumph. Free you to enjoy the place, your place, in the parade of God's glory. So instead of looking at what you're not getting, that, that, that desire you're after, and instead of looking at how others are thwarting you as you pursue that, Look at what God's doing around you. Stop seeing a crab. You will start seeing the turtle. It's a delightful thing. Look at what he's doing around you. See where his character's on display. This happens among us. His character's on display here. Get yourself and your wishes out of the center. Because you cannot see the glory of God if you're focused on what you want. Let that go. Say thank you. And praise Him. That's the parade. That's the mind of Christ. Oh Lord, you know our struggles with sight and how our vision is so much controlled by what it is we want. Would you graciously give us the gift of sight, of seeing you and wanting to see you, seeing your goodness, wanting to thank you, seeing you, wanting to praise you. Lord, we need your help in us to do that. So we ask for it. In Jesus' name.